captured Jerusalem and established it as his capital city. Last week, we saw how David brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. For David, this has been a time of securing and establishing his kingdom around a secure fortress, a secure base in terms of Jerusalem. So with the Ark now in the city of Jerusalem, uh, this capital city is now set to become the political and religious center of the nation. With these foundational elements in place, by the time we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find David reflecting on all that God has done uh, to establish him as king. And he makes a determined plan to build a house for God, that is to build a temple to honor God and uh, establish a permanent place of worship for the people of Israel. Nathan the prophet gave, gives um, David his blessing to carry out the plan, only to be overruled by God himself. God spoke to the prophet about what God would do for David instead. Now, Scripture says that David is uh, or was a man after God's heart, and certainly he had a sincere desire to honor God by building a temple for God. But God corrects David's approach. It is not for David to plan out something for God. It is for God to implement his plans in his own way and time. In effect, God tells David, you want to build a house for me? No, I will build a house for you. David's plan is for something in the immediate future. Building a temple in Jerusalem was the next logical step. David was planning on what he can see in the future, or what he can see in the immediate future, in the present context. But God's plans are far bigger than what David can see. God's future perspectives are far beyond what David can even think or imagine. God's heart's desire was to establish his kingdom where he can dwell with his people, where his people will live in peace and security. God's favor and blessing on David involved more than just David. In Second Samuel chapter 5, verse 12, David himself recognized this. Then David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David's heart's desire is to build a house for God. But God's heart's desire is to secure his people. In verse 10 we read, And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people, wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning. This is what God's kingdom will look like for his people. David's role is to be God's human representative to rule over his people as earthly king. But David was not to rule over the people as other kings of other nations. Kings of other nations rule according to their heart's desire and build temples to win favor from their gods. But David was to be different. David was to rule by pursuing God's heart, by inquiring of God's will, by being a passionate worshiper of God. David understood that he was to submit to God's authority and could not win 
God's favour by building programs, but by building God's people in the way of the Lord. David must rule by having active obedience to God as one who rules over all. And because David showed these characteristics of pursuing God's heart and inquiring of God's will, as we saw previously in 1 Samuel and in the previous weeks, God was determined to establish for David a, a ruling dynasty that will rule over God's people. In verse 16, uh, God says to David, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. As for David's original heart's desire to build God's kingdom, God decreed that it will be David's son instead who will build a house for the Lord. God's plans and vision turn out to be far greater than what David could ever hope or imagine. David thought about a building. God thought about eternity. In the immediate historical context, God's words will be fulfilled when David's son, Solomon, built the temple in Jerusalem. But in this passage, we also see an eternal kingdom that will be established. And in time, God's own son will come to fulfill God's plan of an eternal kingdom. The New Testament saw Jesus who came from the earthly line of David, but also is the incarnate Son of God. He, was the one who to, he is the one to fulfill the word of the Lord. For example, in Romans chapter 1, Paul, the apostle, directly links the gospel message of Christ to Christ as king. And Paul says, regarding his son, who as to his earthly life was the descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was appointed the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. God's vision and plans are infinitely larger and more profound than we can ever think or imagine. God's redemptive plan was working through the nation of Israel until the fullness of time when God sent His Son to bring salvation and establish God's everlasting kingdom on earth. The big idea for today, then, is a devoted church is one that lives under God's kingdom. There are three aspects of living under God's kingdom we will look at today. First, kingdom reality. Second, kingdom thinking. And third, kingdom expansion. First, kingdom reality. God's kingdom must be our primary reality each day. How often do we think of our Christian life as being in God's kingdom? We pray the, the Lord's prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. David was uh, probably in his mid and late teens when the prophet Samuel anointed him as God's chosen king. In 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13, it says that from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David. However, David did not become king until he was 30 years old. And quite a few of those intervening years were spent on the run like a fugitive as the old king Saul hunted him down. But David never lost sight of the reality that God had anointed him to be king, even though at times the situation must have seemed 
absolutely desperate. Because David knew the Lord was the one who would keep his promise. David could be at rest when he was fleeing from Saul. We see that especially when David spares Saul's life twice because David would not strike down Saul as God's presently anointed king, even though Saul was trying to kill him. David's faith made him believe that God's reality for him, God's plan for him, is greater than the immediate reality of Saul's threat to his own life. By the powerful presence of the Spirit of the Lord upon his life, David lived in the reality of God's anointing over his life. While on the run, he actually lived as a true king should, as a man after God's heart from the inside out, even though he was a hunted fugitive on the outside earthly reality. By the time we come to 2 Samuel chapter 7, God secured David's throne and caused all Israel to give loyalty to David. What had been always true in David's heart, since Samuel anointed him, God has now made it a physical, earthly reality. With David on the throne, God has come to fulfill his heart's desire for his people Israel. And that was to give them peace and security in the land. As we saw earlier, God has a specific vision for his people to plant them and make them live securely. And within that context, God promises David in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, 11, uh, chapter 7, verse 11, I will also give you rest from all your enemies. Now, in these verses, David receives a revelation of God's kingdom reality. For the sake of his people, God was going to give David rest from his enemies and establish David's family line, David's house. And this line will continue as God, is, as God ushers in an everlasting kingdom. And as we saw earlier, we know that this has been completely fulfilled by Jesus as the everlasting king. But for David's time, David's everyday reality was that God was building his kingdom through David and his family line. No matter how bad things would come, and it will become very bad, this was to be David's and his family's overriding reality. Notice that God did not say that there will be no, there were to be no enemies. But God's promise is that God will give David rest from his enemies. David was to find rest, his place of peace and security in God's word in the presence of his enemies. In times past, God has got cut off and defeated David's enemies. And so David could rest in the Lord that whatever enemies lurked in the future, they will be dealt with as well. Even in the darkest days of Israel's later exile, when all seemed irreversibly lost, godly men and women of faith would still hold on that God's promises to David would not fail. One of David's 
greatest legacy of faith is David's sense, his sense of reality was centered on God. It was anchored on God's word over and against whatever circumstances he faced. Now, he was far from a perfect leader, we know that. But his heart led him back to God. In our own time and season, Jesus is already on the throne. Does God's kingdom reality capture our imagination and hearts to live for him each day? In God's kingdom, we are not just living to pass time. God is building and working in us and through us to build his kingdom reality, and we have a specific place in that. This is the kingdom reality that we should hold on each day, that we are sons and daughters of God the Father in heaven. We are disciples of Christ. Our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit. This is our defining reality, no matter what the circumstances might be. This is our unchanging identity and calling. And we are called to find our rest, our place of security and peace in God's kingdom reality. We are part of God's kingdom. And our strength each day comes from our place of rest. Our work for God rests on the finished work of Christ on the cross as our cornerstone. And we have uh, to make this our primary reality because either we rest in the Lord or we will strive in the flesh. Like David, God, God gives us rest from things that threaten and oppose us. But striving in the flesh leads to pride, anxiety, bitterness, anger, and malice. If you strive in the flesh, you will do things according to the flesh. You may get results according to flesh. It may be successful, but it does not honor God. Or you will fail, and that's where we get our depression, anxiety, anger, bitterness. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says, the, the, mind governed, the mind governed by the flesh is death, or it leads to death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. That's our kingdom reality. Rest in the Lord, not strife in the flesh. Now, resting does not mean passive inactivity. It is living in peace and confidence in the one who makes promises over your life through his son, Jesus Christ. It is the strength of knowing your identity and calling as a child of God and a follower of Christ, that the Spirit of the Lord comes on you, lives within you, so that in all things, you will overcome and experience God's victory in life. Now, striving in the, fresh, in the flesh means that everything needs to happen perfectly according to your imagination, your expectations, your desires, etc. And so you hold on, we hold on to all these things that either bring us pride or lead us to depression. Living in, according to a mind governed by God's Spirit is we hold loosely to the circumstances of life. If it happens according to God's will, we flow with the Lord. 
if the Lord uh, chooses not to make things flow according to our expectations, we continue to flow with the Lord. And so, God's kingdom reality must dominate our everyday reality, not the circumstances of life. We deal with the circumstances of life from our position of rest and security in the Lord. And, and too often, we in the church, we live in response to circumstances around us instead of God's word for us. But in God's kingdom where Christ reigns on the throne, we are to live in response to God's word so that we take the authority of God's word to face the circumstances. And so don't let your circumstances shape your understanding of God's word. Let God's word shape your understanding and response to circumstances of, and, and people. This is actually a question of authority. Having peace and confidence in God's kingdom is actually having confidence in the authority of God's word and decrees. In response to God's promise for him and his family line, David says this in 2 Samuel 7, chapter 20, uh, verse 21, for the sake of your word and according to your will, you have done this great thing and made it known to your servant. For the sake of your word and according to your will. David knew where the source of authority and power was to be found in his life. And he was going to live in response to the reality of God's unfailing word and his authoritative will. And this is our position of rest every day for the sake of your word, Lord, according to your will, Lord. I live this day. So here's our first takeaway that I want to leave with you. Make God's kingdom rule your stronghold. Second, kingdom thinking is an integral part of living in God's kingdom. Or we should, in other words, we should learn to think God's thoughts after him. And this is the famous quote by Kepler that uh, a Christian astronomer in the 17th century, I think. As mentioned earlier, David was a man after God's heart and his desire was to build a house for God. This, was, this comes out of a sincere, earnest desire on David's part. The start of 2 Samuel chapter 7 outlines David's motivation. If, had, if he had already established his throne and built a fortress to secure it, and if the Ark of the Covenant has already been brought back to Jerusalem, what could be more natural and logical than to build a house to honour the Lord. And the prophet Nathan certainly agreed with David. He agreed with David's train of thought and gave him uh, his blessing. But David learned that the most logical thing may not be the most important thing that God requires of him. He learned that having a sincere, earnest desire to do something for God isn't necessarily the same thing as what God has in mind. And I think we can identify with that. Our church plans and personal life goals could be what we think might please God, 
but that does not necessarily mean that God agrees with our plans. We all know the well-known passage in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 8, where the Lord says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, neither are your ways my ways. Uh, borrowing a phrasing from uh, Henry Blackaby, what God intended to do through David was far more important than what David wanted to do for God. And the truth is this, what God does is always far more than we can ever hope or imagine, as Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. In fact, when God revealed what he was about to do for and through David, David was awestruck and amazed at how far-reaching and eternal God's plans were. In verses 18 to 19, David went before the Lord and said, Who am I, sovereign Lord, and what is my family that you have brought me this far? And as if this were not enough in your sight, sovereign Lord, you have also spoken about the future of your house of your servant. And this decree, O sovereign Lord, is for a mere human. So the immensity of God's plans for David, through David, for the nation of Israel is simply beyond human understanding. Of course, God's plans for David and his family line were unique and exceptional. But by living in God's kingdom through believing faith in Jesus Christ, we share an inheritance with Christ too glorious and wonderful for human minds to fully comprehend. David learned that day that the Lord's thoughts and his ways are so much higher than what we can ever ask, hope, or imagine. But to start living in God's kingdom, we need to be redeemed in our way of thinking, in the ways we think about life and living. When Jesus announced the gospel, he said, the time has come, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the good news. Now, the original Greek word for the word repent is metanoel, which means to change one's mind, attitude, or thinking. Uh, it does certainly involve a total change of one's life direction and purpose, but we should not miss the importance of changing the mind or mode of thinking. Our frame of thinking and living needs to be redeemed and transformed to live in and for God's kingdom. And this was something that the people of Jesus' day, not least the religious leaders, found very difficult. The people were astonished at how and what Jesus taught that challenged their prevailing attitudes and assumptions of how to live for God. For example, Jesus would teach that whoever would save his life or try to save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for his sake will save it. He will say that many who are first today would be last. And many who are last today would be first. This doesn't align with how we think about things. Jesus would teach about loving one's enemies and praying for those who persecute us. Not just as exceptional, in exceptional situations, but, but expected norms of his disciples. Jesus upended and overturned people's expectations of what success would look like. 
of what it means to be blessed, of what type of faith practice pleases God. Without repentance, without having our minds and attitudes and worldviews redeemed and radically transformed by God, it will be virtually impossible to live in and for God's kingdom. Basically, it's about having our minds governed by the Holy Spirit that will result in life and peace, as we read earlier in Romans chapter 8, verse 6. Now, thinking God's thoughts, meaning thinking according to God's ways, according to His Word, having our minds governed by God's Spirit results in, in life. Conversely, it means that we cannot afford to have our minds dominated by how the flesh thinks. We cannot allow thought patterns of this world to take root in us. For example, I, I um, knew a brother, um, not from this church, but um, he was a, a man of God's word, very um, knowledgeable of scripture, knows God's word. Basically, he could be a, you know, a, a Bible study, the, the knowledge of God's word, he could be easily a Bible uh, teacher or pastor. But um, he, he, he lived with a very strong sense of guilt and condemnation. He knows uh, God's word is about forgiveness, but uh, he, he feels that he has done uh, unforgivable sin. So um, his thoughts is just, um, or his reality is dominated by a sense of condemnation. Now, this is one example. If you think that you are condemned, imagine living that life, but that may not be God. That's not God's thought. God's thought is you are forgiven, but you take that thought that you are um, guilty and condemned every time, um, that, that obviously doesn't live to life, right? So it's, it's your thoughts are in opposition to what God actually thinks, for example. Of course, on the other hand, we may think that we are okay, where the life, the attitudes that we carry may be okay, but that, you know, is not aligned to how God thinks of how we should live. I mean, that's another disconnect. So, we, our thoughts need to align with God's thoughts about us, about our families. But how do we start thinking about God's thoughts after Him? The short but difficult answer is that we need to spend time with God. There's no really two ways about it. Uh, Abraham Lincoln was quoted as saying, give me six hours to chop down a tree and I'll spend the first four sharpening the axe. That's a good description actually of how we should approach the spiritual discipline of our minds. Our thought patterns and worldviews need to be sharpened by God's spirit and his word so that we can discern God's voice and purposes in our lives. What if we spend more time abiding in the Lord and being refreshed in His presence in a way that increases our sensitivity to God's leading throughout the day? Right? Instead of jumping straight away into our major decisions, important work of the day, what if that sacred time where we spend in the Lord's presence makes our day actually more fruitful and meaningful? Pastor and author Doc Wilson says his best that we should be fruitful like a tree and not efficient like a machine. To apply Wilson's idea further, if we had 10 days of productive work in a day 
and we set aside one hour to abide in the Lord's presence. The remaining nine hours could be more fruitful in the sense of being better aware of God's continued presence and grace throughout the day. In other words, nine hours blessed with fruitfulness that comes out from the Lord is better than ten unfruitful hours, if you get what I mean. Now, I'm not talking about getting results. Many of us here in the professional world, we are trained to be efficient, to clock in the hours and get the results. We can do that. Being fruitful in the Lord and reflecting His grace and wisdom in our daily lives is quite a different matter altogether. In one of his sermons here last year, Pastor Ronald, not the recent one, uh, last year, Pastor Ronald shared how one CEO of a major company in Singapore, I forgot which company, but the, I think quite prominent public listed company who came to the Lord, testified about the difference his faith has made in his work life. And he said that now, well, one of the key differences now he takes longer to make decisions. You see, you have to wrestle more with decisions because you want to honour the Lord. You want to align with God's way. If the, this CEO, if he wanted to be efficient, he could have taken decisions quicker, but that could mean impacting others negatively. And many of you here can relate this from the workplace. Decisions and actions to make numbers look good are easy to make if you are ruthless enough. You can make the numbers look good. But the human costs behind the numbers don't often show up clearly in quarterly and annual reports. There was a major train wreck in the uh, US recently where they spilled a lot of toxic chemicals into the community. That company actually for the past few years, Wall Street loved them because they were reporting excellent profits, numbers were great, but now questions are being asked, what decisions were made in terms of reducing maintenance work, for example. So you could, make, you could come with decisions that make the numbers look good, but there is a human cost or operating cost behind those numbers. If this comes to our abiding in Christ, in the Lord's presence as individuals, then we also need to remember that this must be true of us as a church, as a local church community like this. If we as a church community, if we allow our thoughts and, and, and minds to conform and align to God's ways, then that's the way we grow in maturity, to properly reflect and represent Christ, our King's values to a watching world. So for a second key takeaway, our minds and thought patterns need to conform and align with God's ways as he revealed himself through his word in his kingdom. Third, kingdom expansion. From the time David ascended to the throne, God's hand kept David safe during the period of transition where there were um, opponents and helped him eventually establish his capital in Jerusalem. David was able to secure his base in which he could effectively govern the country and secure the borders. But there were still frontiers to secure and battles to fight. David um, not just had to secure the border, but expand out into surrounding tribes and areas who were a threat to Israel's security. And we see this actually in the next chapter, in chapter 8. In the bigger picture though, uh, God established and built his kingdom in and through Israel 
in order that his presence may dwell with his people in the land and that the surrounding nations will know that the true creator God is present in Israel. In Exodus, when God first brought his people out of Egypt, God instruct, the Lord instructed Moses to tell the people of Israel, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So out of all nations, Israel was to be God's chosen people and keep the revelation of God's law and be the dwelling place of God's presence on earth. So the context of Israel's conquest and expansion into the land can be seen as an expansion of sacred space where God's dwelling presence with the revelation of his law will be established in Jerusalem and extending outwards from there. So in, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, we will read that David secured and expanded the kingdom boundaries into the surrounding areas through military conquests and alliances. And the passage makes clear that it was the Lord who gave victory to David wherever he went. In our own context today, we no longer fight against human enemies or wage war for territorial conquest. As noted earlier, Jesus makes plain that we are to love and pray for our enemies. The time of the New Testament is a new season of fulfillment of God's salvation plan for all humanity. Jesus defeated the actual enemy, the real enemy, the great enemy, the powers of sin and death on the cross. Therefore, when God's people expand the kingdom today, they do so by proclaiming the gospel for the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection hope in Christ and showing redemptive grace where God sends them. When we work for God's kingdom today, we work from the foundation of Jesus' finished work on the cross and live in the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead. The cross and resurrection power are what expands God's kingdom today and sets people free from sin and darkness. When God plants a local church in a specific community, it becomes an outpost of God's kingdom where the authority of Christ and the work of the Holy Spirit are established and expanded in that particular community, in that particular location. It's actually bad news for the forces of sin and darkness when God plants a church in a particular location. It's actually bad news for them. If the church functions as it ought to function, a lot of the works of darkness and sin get hindered or even reversed. If a devoted church in a community is active in kingdom work, there would be transformation within the church and in the surrounding community. That is the nature of God's kingdom. You will start to see the community instinctively come to the church for help when there is pain or trouble in the community. Or at least that should be one of the healthy signs of an impactful church. But we have to admit that that's not always the case. I'm not speaking about this church in particular, but in general, a church could be distracted or discouraged or disillusioned. It could be that 
complacency and convenience has seeped into a church culture. Spiritual warfare against a church centers on three main ways in which the enemy frustrates the work of the church. First is fear and intimidation. Fear and intimidation. If you do something, you might get it back. If you pray for the sick, you might get the sickness. It's fear and intimidation. Second is distraction. We are distracted by our own ambition or what we think ought to do, but as long as the evil one keeps the church distracted, he's safe. And of course, lastly, it's about disunity. You have, you have unforgiveness, you have infighting within the church. That is the last and greatest way in which um, the enemy frustrates or hinders the work of the church. But for whatever reason, a local church has every opportunity to return to its first love and do the things that it did at first when God established it. We, um, in other words, need to have a humble expectation to experience God's presence in our own lives and whenever we gather as a church in small groups, in prayer meetings, in church services, we need to come with reverence and with a humble expectations of encountering God's presence. I do not doubt that if you really knew that Christ was present, you would not hesitate to come. You will not hesitate to try to even touch the helm of his cloak if you knew Christ was present whenever you gather as a church, whenever you come to prayer meetings, whenever you gather as a small group. The problem with us is the prevailing reality of our earthly existence usually dominates, so we usually don't catch um, the, that, that sense of God's presence. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25, Paul exhorts the church to exercise the gift of spirit-empowered prophecy so that unbelievers would encounter the powerful conviction of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit convicting them of sin, and so that they would say that God is really among you. I'm quoting this just to, just to let us know that um, whenever we gather like this, God is actually present. He can be present in very subtle ways. He can be present in powerful ways. Uh, but God is present. And we need to recapture a sense of that. Um, I want to end at this point by praying for all of us um, as we live in the kingdom reality of, of God and have our minds and thoughts aligned to God's way of thinking, also in terms of living in spirit-empowered presence so that the kingdom may be expanded. If your present circumstances today seems to be overwhelming, that's your overwhelming um, earthly reality, today we want to pray that God's kingdom reality will start to dominate. 
so that each day you will not face the day unless you have um, grounded yourself with God's kingdom reality. That you're able to take the authority of God's word, of his promises over your life into your everyday circumstances. There may be thoughts troubling you this day. And we want to pray that our thoughts are now going to be centered on how God thinks. Your thoughts will be aligned with God's thoughts about you, your life, your situation. It could be we need to repent. It could well be that we need to repent. But it also could be that we need to receive His forgiveness and assurance that He is with you. And lastly, to experience God's presence powerfully as He expands His kingdom in our lives and around us. Let's just lift up our hearts to the Lord. And I invite you, if you have that situation, that overwhelming sense of circumstances dominating in your life, I ask that you bring it to the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let His kingdom authority, let His kingdom power be the overriding force and reality in your life right now. Father, we come in your presence, we bow down before your throne. Father, we live so long in response to circumstances, but today, Lord, we want to pray that we will live in the fullness of your kingdom reality. If today you do not have a personal saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is here. He is present. Today is the day of your salvation. I invite you to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus. Believe upon Him as your Lord and Savior. Father, for those who are turning to you right now, to those who are surrendering their lives to the Lord Jesus right now, I pray that you will grant them that gift of salvation that you let your love fill their hearts and their minds right now. I pray for those of us who are weighed down with the heavy circumstances of life that we are afraid of every day. Father, by faith, because you are a good and saving God, you are the God of our salvation, we lay aside the earthly reality, but Lord, we pray to live in your heavenly return reality, that we will fully know and be confident that we are sons and daughters of God Most High. We are followers of Christ. We are not afraid. We don't want to be afraid or intimidated by other people anymore because we are followers of Christ, our King. And our bodies are temple of the Holy Spirit. And we want to live in this kingdom reality. Father, we don't know about the situation 
But Lord, we pray your hand will bring your kingdom authority into our everyday situation. Father, you know our thoughts, you know our habits of thoughts, you know our attitudes. Father, align our thoughts and our mind to be governed by the Holy Spirit, which leads to life, which leads to peace and life and security. And so, Lord, we want to fill our minds, we want to set our minds on things above, not on earthly things, but on Christ who is seated at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. And we bring our thoughts in alignment to your thoughts, Lord, to your word. That as your thoughts, as you think your thoughts in our lives, your thoughts, your word, your purposes will become our living reality. And so, Lord, we bow down before you and Lord, we pray that any destructive thoughts, any self-condemning thoughts, Lord, we cast it aside in Jesus' name. Any prideful thought, any sinful thought that sets up itself against the Lordship of Christ, Lord, we cast it away in Jesus' name. And we pray for the mind of the Spirit to keep us in your thoughts, in your way of thinking. Father, we pray for kingdom expansion in the life of our families. We pray for kingdom expansion in the life of our community, our workplaces, our schools, life of our children, our children's children. Father, may your kingdom grow so that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be lifted up. And so, Lord, we bow down before you. We pray humbly as your people. Fill us with your presence, even as we turn to worship you. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.